Let's turn to John chapter 20, if you will, in your Bibles. John chapter 20. I mean, where else would you turn but in your Bibles, okay? So, <laughs> thought I'd mention that just to make sure that you know where we're going. John chapter 20. We talked about the eventful nature of this resurrection weekend that took place there in Jerusalem following that Passover weekend that seemed to have been a very stressful time for the disciples of Jesus. Without really wondering what was going on, they ran in fear. But there were those brave women that went to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body, hoping that there would be somebody to remove the stone so that they could go in and do that. Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb and, and discovers that the stone has been moved but the body's not there. And she doesn't see anything but the fact that Jesus isn't there. And she runs and, and speaks to Peter and to John and tells them and they run to the tomb. And with what, what light that they saw within that, that tomb, they were able to see that the grave clothes were empty, but they were there and they were orderly and neatly laid on the tomb. But Mary looks in, and angel, the angels are there at the foot and the head of the stone. And they say to her, Why do you weep? She says, because they've taken away my Lord. They say, well, he's not here. <laughs> he's risen. He's risen. So Mary and the other ladies, the other women, according to all the gospels, go and tell the disciples they don't believe him. It's just hard, except, except John. John believed when he saw, but they didn't believe. That same day, that Sunday, that same day, toward the evening, they had gathered together in that upper room where they had had the Passover supper. They locked the doors. I mean, they really just barricaded the doors, as it were. And that did not, that could keep out a lot of people, but it didn't keep out Jesus because he appears unto them but in a body that could be seen and really a body that could be touched. And he offered them shalom, peace be unto you. They had been afraid of what might be happening to them for having been followers of Jesus, but here Jesus comes and says to them, be at peace, be whole and complete. He gives them some instruction in the sense that he says to them that they are 
to proclaim his forgiveness for what he did on the cross brings forgiveness to those who would believe. But in that meeting that day or that evening, one of the disciples that was still a disciple was missing. And we know him as Thomas. And in verse 24 is where we want to pick up in our study of this chapter. And look for a moment at the life and heart and attitude of Thomas. It says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. The next Sunday. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Shalom. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ made and continues to make certain demands on those who were and are faced with the proclamation and subsequent eyewitness evidence pertaining to the Lord rising again from the dead. This is what I mean, for example, with the Apostle John. The resurrection of Jesus placed a great demand on his intellect and understanding. For we know from verses 8 and 9 of this chapter that John believed when he saw the empty grave closed, but had yet to know the scriptures concerning the resurrection. And then there was Mary Magdalene. Jesus' resurrection placed a great demand on her heart and even on her emotions, since she considered Jesus still dead when she went to anoint his body. And she considered him dead until she spoke to who she thought was the gardener, and it was Jesus. But what we find now in this portion of chapter 20 is the demand that was placed on the will of the Apostle Thomas by the resurrection of the Messiah. 
And you see the significant dilemma for Thomas was his doubt that was certainly reinforced by his stubborn will. But whatever demands were dismissed for John and Mary, because they would be, would certainly be dismissed as well for Thomas. But this was a little bit of a different case here because we might know him as Doubting Thomas, right? How many of you know him as Doubting Thomas? Okay. But that might just be a mischaracterization. In fact, it could be worse than being just a doubter. Let's discover. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. There's so much in this one little verse about this apostle named Thomas. First of all, his two names, Thomas and Didymus. The name Thomas itself comes actually from an Aramaic word. Didymus is Greek, but both names mean the same thing. They mean twin. Thomas was a twin. He obviously had a twin somewhere. We don't know who the twin was. We're not told in scripture who his twin was. But we can be sure that down through the ages, he's had many a twin in the church sharing his doubts and unbelief. Now twins, for the most part, not, all, not always, but twins for the most part share a lot of characteristics. Many times it's physical characteristics. Sometimes it's just, you know, attitudinal characteristics or, or just things that they do together or sometimes they can't do apart, you know. So it's just interesting that he is a twin and yet he has a lot of twins with him. Because even in the church today, there are those who have some doubts and share some unbeliefs in their hearts. Or maybe they don't share them at all. But they may have the attitudes of doubt and unbelief. Now, if we're asking why Thomas was not with the rest of the disciples when Jesus appeared to them, now we might conclude that he was even more afraid than they. He was so afraid that he really didn't want to be with the other disciples. He was going to hide in, in, a, in a better place or whatever. That's possible. Or perhaps he was just plain disappointed. He was discouraged and he was defeated by all that had taken place that eventful weekend. It is quite possible that Thomas had had enough. Been with Jesus three and a half years. And this is all that's come out of it. He's dead and buried. Most of us need to know that being alone only feeds disappointment, doesn't it? Being alone feeds disappointment and discouragement, and sometimes it turns those disappointments and discouragements into self-pity. And that's an even worse thing than discouragement and disappointment. That may have happened to Thomas. And yet, that just seems to counter what we read in John chapter 11, verse 16, a chapter in which Jesus hears about the death of his friend Lazarus, and then Jesus desires to return to the area of Jerusalem. And this stirs in the heart of Thomas. 
to make a statement of great significance. We're told in John chapter 11, verse 14, that Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. An interesting statement that Jesus makes as well. I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. But that would eventually happen when he does show up and then he says to the to people, move the stone, and he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. To the intent that they might believe. But he says, nevertheless, let us go unto him. Thomas, in taking all of this in, says this. Thomas, who is Didymus, the twin, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's not talking about dying with Lazarus. He's talking about dying with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is going back to Jerusalem where all of his enemies are and they've gathered ready to do something against him. Thomas has been seeing this. Every time that they pick up stones to stone Jesus, Thomas is there. He's seeing what's happening. If we stay away from Jerusalem, we're, we're safer. You come to Jerusalem, we're, we might as well die with you. Now, some have interpreted this statement as a courageous one. Realizing that in returning to Jerusalem, those who had been after Jesus would have a greater opportunity to harm him there. And he, along with the other disciples, would stand with the Lord, no matter what was to take place. However, this statement could also be seen as one of despair and one of hopelessness. And all he was able to see, in other words, was the Jews' hostility and determination to get rid of Jesus. So, let's just go die with him. But then, Thomas's true character could also be heard in his response to Jesus' promise in John 14. There, where the disciples are intimately listening and, and, and having fellowship with Jesus, Lazarus has already left the building. Not Elvis, La, uh, uh, Judas Iscariot, I should say. Not, not, not Lazarus or Elvis. Judas is scary. He's gone. Judas is gone. And now the 11 are there with Jesus. And he began by saying that great statement. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. We begin in verse 3 here. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also, and whither I go you know, and the way you know. Now, notice that last statement of Jesus. He says, where I go you know, and the way you know. Now, does Jesus always tell the truth? He does because he is the truth, right? So he says, where I go you know. Why does he say he, they should know? Because he's told them that. He's told them, I'm going back to the Father, that's where I'm going. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and you know where I'm going. And the way you know. They were with him three and a half years, shouldn't they know the way? Because he is the way, isn't he? So here's Thomas' statement, Thomas saith unto the Lord, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. He just called Jesus a liar. Lord, 
We know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? I have to take my glasses off to do the, you know, one of those things. Man, what is up with this guy? But of course we know Jesus answered to Thomas. Verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, directly, this statement is given to Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Then in verse 7, he speaks to all of his disciples because Thomas wasn't alone with his attitudes of doubt and unbelief. And he said, if ye had known me, the ye in the King James speaks of you altogether. If not, he would have said, if thou had known me, it would have been singular and direct to Thomas. This is speaking to all the disciples. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Now, if there's anything of value that we can take from Thomas's response, it would be that he was not a man to pretend he had a faith he didn't have. I want to say that again because I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. If there's any, anything of value at all that we can take from Thomas's response, it would be that he was not a man to pretend he had a faith that he did not have. How many people today pretend that they have a faith that they really don't have in the Lord Jesus Christ? So we can actually thank the Apostle Thomas for asking the question. For it gave Jesus the opportunity to make that great and grand I am statement summarizing God's way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Secondly, by not being there with the disciples, going back to verse 24, he was not with them when Jesus came. By not being there with the disciples, Thomas missed a meeting with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss a meeting with Jesus. Does anybody want to miss a meeting with Jesus? Not at all. Now some of you are inside saying, well... I hope you're not saying, well, <laughs> I wouldn't want to miss a meeting with Jesus. Let me interject here very quickly, but this is the reason why we need to be ready because Jesus could come at any moment. Does anybody want to miss him when he comes to gather his church together? I hope not. Okay, let's move on. Thomas missed a meeting with Jesus. Hey, listen, whatever the reason... Whatever the excuses, he missed the opportunity for a great blessing. Would you not say that the ten were blessed when Jesus said, Shalom! I would have been blessed out of my socks or sandals, whatever. They never feared again, by the way, not as they had before this. But Thomas wasn't with them. Whatever else he was doing that night, it just wasn't worth it. It just wasn't worth it. 
based on a statement made by Jesus himself in Matthew 18, verse 20, where he says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them, we can definitely confirm that people who forsake the assembling of themselves together from the meetings of the church always miss a meeting with the Lord and a fresh revelation of himself. I wouldn't want to miss that. And I can tell you this, I'm human. I've been the pastor of this church for almost 35 years. And, I, and I'm not saying this in, in boasting, but you know, I mean, it's very rarely that I don't want to be here on a Sunday morning. <laughs> it's very rare. You know, the only time is when I'm really sick. And that's only happened once or twice in 35 years. I've been at this pulpit where I didn't even have a voice. Laryngitis. Turn to John chapter, you know. You know why? Because I love being here with you so that we might meet with Jesus afresh. I just love being here. And I love being with you. And I can't wait to see what the Lord has for us. It could be a very simple thing. It doesn't have to be anything great or grand in the sense of, you know, scope. It could be one word that will encourage somebody's heart in this place to go out in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. That's it. But you miss that when you're not here. Now I understand that there are times when we can't be here. I understand that there's work to, to be done. There's, there's a lot of different ways that we're trying to help you with that. We, we have, you know, the, uh, the website, and you can see it live at home. Some of you do that on, on, on Wednesdays because you can't get here because you can't drive at night. That's fine. Praise the Lord. I'm excited about that. That's why we do it. But there's nothing like the fellowship that we can have in this place, in the presence of Almighty God, and in, this, in, in, in just the the study of his word, to, to receive something that is spiritual and something that is eternal. We miss that. So we just have to be careful with the reasons that we give. We understand if you're in the hospital with one leg up, you know, in a cast, I can't be at church today. We understand that. Why aren't you here? Bring your cast. Oh, we understand. But only, you know, the Lord knows your heart. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. I just don't want you to miss the blessings that God wants to give you. And if you came today, this morning, and said, well, it's church is church, you know, wow, what an attitude. You need to come and say, I've got something to receive from the Lord today, and I'm here to receive it, whatever it is. So let me add now at this point that the Holy Spirit would draw our attention about those absent from this most significant meeting with Jesus by the phrase, one of the 12. And notice that I said, those absent from this significant meeting. One of the 12 is a statement made about Thomas. But I also want you not to forget that the only other person absent from that meeting in the upper room was one Judas Iscariot. because he had already left a few days earlier to betray Jesus. But here's the thing. It is interesting to me that the only usage of this phrase, one of the 12, pertains to the son of perdition. I'm gonna do this fast, but you're gonna see it up here. Matthew 26, 14. 
Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest. One of the twelve. Look at Mark 14, verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. Luke 22, verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. One of the twelve. And even in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, when many of the disciples of Jesus left him, it says, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. That phrase links Thomas to Judas Iscariot, and that's not a good thing. Because no other disciple is given that designation except Thomas, along with Judas Iscariot. We are beginning to see a clearer picture of the heart of Thomas. I'm not calling him a, a devil. But we need to get down to the very root of what's going on. John reveals what is manifested in his heart. Look at John 20, verse 25, going back to our text. The next verse. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. Now this, of course, was after the meeting on Sunday, the first meeting on Sunday. They found Thomas, they said, listen, we've seen the Lord. And, and by the way, that statement, we have seen the Lord, uh, I should say the, the, the other disciples said unto him, that verb said there means they continue to say it to him. They kept saying to him, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. They didn't stop telling him that. He said, no, 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 yes, 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 no, 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 yes, 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 yes. They kept saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, the tupos, the tupon, the print, the pattern, the scar, and put, balo, put, thrust, it's the same word as thrust later, put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And consider, if you will, for just a moment, the distinction between doubt and unbelief. Because doubt, we all have our doubts about things, but doubt is primarily and usually an intellectual problem. It's an intellectual problem. Because there are, there are those who say that they want to believe something, but, they, they, but their trust or their faith is clouded over or it's overwhelmed by problems or questions or like for some with the Bible, apparent contradictions as it were, and the like. Doubts. Intellectual problem. Unbelief, on the other hand. Unbelief is a moral problem. Unbelief is in the heart. People will simply not believe. No matter what you show them. It's, it's like uh, the rich man in Lazarus. In Luke 16, you know. 
You, you, have, you have this scene where, where Lazarus, the poor one who was eating the crumbs off the table, you know, from the, below the table with the dogs of, of the rich man, ends up in the bosom of Abraham while the rich man is in, you know, in, in, that, in that area where he, you know, he can't hardly ever see anything because he's, he's in Hades, you know. So he cries out to, you know, to Abraham and says, hey, you know, send, send, send people to my, my family. I don't want them to come where I'm at, you know, and whatnot. I'm just making this real quick here. Eventually what he has to tell him, you know, is look, even if a man is raised from the dead, they're not going to believe. <laughs> Which is what's going to happen. Someone's going to rise from the dead and, he, and they're not going to believe. And they refuse to believe. They would not believe. People simply not, not believe. Again, it is a matter of the will. The skeptic or, or the agnostic says, you know, I can't believe. I, I don't have enough evidence. I don't see enough this or that in history or whatever. I can't believe. But Thomas doesn't say, I can't. He says, I will not believe. And so what was it? What was it that Thomas would not, and by the way, notice that I didn't say could not, because you see, could is an, is an issue of ability, would is an issue of the will. So what was it that Thomas would not believe? He would not believe the reports of the others that Jesus was alive. He would not believe it, and according to the verb, as I said in verse 25, they kept saying to him, Thomas, 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 Jesus is alive, we have seen him, we have seen him, we have seen him over and over again. Add to this the testimony of the women and the Emmaus disciple. They eventually believed that, but before the disciples didn't believe the women, as we said last time. So some might say that Thomas is to be admired, at least from, for wanting personal testimony and experience. He wants to see for himself. Okay. But understand that what he was doing was laying down conditions for the Lord to meet. Sadly, too many people in the church today are doing the very same thing. They are laying down conditions for the Lord to meet simply because they will not believe. How often have any of us refused to believe the Lord and have insisted that he prove himself to us? How often? Probably more than we could ourselves number. I do hope it's none of us here. Though we may have doubts from time to time, that's just, the, you know, again, that's the mental, you know, trying to come up to a mental ascent of things that really pertain to the heart. Eventually, the heart and the mind have to work together. So, in all of that, isn't this good enough reason then? Isn't this good enough reason for us never to miss a meeting with the Lord's people on the Lord's day? That's a good reason not to miss. Because every time we're together, we are going to be fed the word of God. That it might dispel doubts and fears and even unbelief. Consider Hebrews 10, verses 22 through 25. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. 
and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We can only do that when we are together in fellowship one with another and in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then consider what I referenced to earlier, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as, is, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Time and time again, I'm trying to let you know that the day of Christ is soon. The day of Christ is near. The day of Christ is coming. The day of Christ is around the corner. Because of everything that we see happening in the world today, generally speaking, what we see happening in our country, a little bit more specifically, but more importantly, what's happening in the Middle East and in Israel. All of these things, as we deal with prophetic issues, we are saying all of this to say Jesus is coming soon. Exhort one another, encourage one another, all the more, pray for one another, provoke love and good works with one another. Why? Because Jesus is coming. That's good reason for us to do these things. So getting back to Thomas, when, when Thomas said that he wanted to put his finger in the nail prints and thrust his hand into the spear wound, he used the same word both times. In the English, it's put and thrust. But those words are the, the Greek word balo, as I mentioned earlier, and it is generally translated as cast which is a vigorous movement. It's really describing the movement itself. But notice this movement. You know why? Because that movement is the same movement of the Roman soldiers when they were casting their lots for the garments of Jesus. When they were casting, that's balo. So he said, I want to thrust an active movement into the spear wound of the side of Jesus. And then there's that word print, as I mentioned earlier, tupon, come from tupos or tupto, which is also used twice here. And it literally means a die that is struck, a stamp or a scar, an ensample or a pattern. The Apostle Paul used the word in describing the Thessalonian Christians because they had been to the world as the print of the nail was to Thomas. They had been to the world as that nail print. And I mention this because what they had, what Paul was, was, was saying about those Thessalonian Christians was that they had the marks of Calvary in them. They had the marks of Calvary on them, not physical marks, but they were the pattern of everything that Jesus came to die for, everything that Jesus came to rise again from the dead for. You see, the world, this is why we need to understand this. The world is not so much interested in our doctrines or our views of life. What they're interested in is this. Is there anything about us that will remind them and show them of the death, burial, and resurrection? of Jesus Christ. In other words, do we display those marks of Calvary as our pattern of life? You see, there's too many people in the church today, in the visible church of Jesus Christ today, that may go to a meeting on a Sunday morning, but from Monday to Saturday, they, they live however they want to live or do whatever they want to do. 
say however things that they want to say, and, and sometimes not in a good way. They might be in perfect attendance on Sunday, but does their life bear the marks of Calvary? Does our life indicate that it has been saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, bearing, being buried with our sins, but rising again on the third day alive so that we who believe will again rise with newness of life because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So, verse 26. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within. That would be the next Sunday. And Thomas with them. Now Thomas is there. We don't know what the motivation was whether he was just thinking, well, let's see what happens. Maybe he was encouraged. Come on, Thomas, the Lord will show up again. But there he was. And then came Jesus. The doors being shut. Shut again, but not for the same reason. Because they're no longer in fear. They've seen the Lord. And Jesus stood in the midst and said, Shalom, peace be unto you. And then saith he to Thomas. Now notice, he turns to Thomas immediately. I think you can hear a pin drop. Everybody just kind of looked. Waiting. He says to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger. What did Thomas say in verse 25? Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger. He says, reach here, your finger. And behold my hands. The, 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 the word behold here, an interesting word in the Greek because it means know and see and consider and understand and perceive. In other words, Thomas, be sure. Be sure. Reach into thy finger and be sure. Here's my hand. Be sure. And reach into thy hand. Oh, the next phrase of Thomas in verse 25 was, I want to have my hand and thrust it into my side. And Jesus said, well, reach here. Reach into thy hand and thrust it into my side. He's using the exact same words that Thomas had used. Jesus was listening. He was a secret listener. And then he says, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. And let me just 
take away the thought that what some people are saying here because they don't want they don't want to push the idea that that anywhere in the gospels that uh, Jesus was declared as deity no Jesus was declared as deity many times and this is one of those times because they were they would say well what Thomas was saying was just what what anybody would say when they saw something amazing oh my lord and my god right I've heard atheists use that phrase. Oh my God, you don't believe in God. Oh yeah, I know, but this was amazing, you know. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what they're using this statement. But it wasn't a statement by Thomas. It was his heart saying, my Lord, you're my Lord, you're my God. Okay, we'll come back to that. So the festivities of Passover week and weekend were now well over and the disciples were more than likely preparing to go back to the Galilee and eight days after their initial meeting with Jesus. Here they are together again in the upper room and this time Thomas is there and again it was Sunday and Jesus appears and he says shalom and and this time the apostles are no longer afraid except for Thomas. (laughs) And the Lord then turns directly to him and I'm sure you could hear a pin drop as I said and reveal that he had been a silent witness to Thomas' Thomas' words of unbelief because he uses the very same words. Okay, I had to say all that just to say, okay, I got ahead of myself. All right, now, here's the thing. It was the statement that Jesus made, and be not faithless, but believing. That was the statement that struck the heart of Thomas. Be not faithless. Now, it sounds, sounds somewhat innocuous. Be not faithless, but believing. That's not what it means. I mean, well, it is, but, it, but, it, but it's a stronger meaning. Because what Jesus said to Thomas was, and, and it really can be, be stated in these two statements, don't become faithless. And it also means stop being faithless and start believing. And what we need to understand is that Jesus did not rebuke Thomas's doubt. He rebuked his unbelief. He rebuked Thomas's unbelief. The Lord saw a dangerous process at work in the disciples' heart, and he wanted to stop it immediately. Stop becoming faithless, but become a believer. How serious can this be in the church today? It's tremendously serious. Because there are some people who think that they walk into the, through the doors of a church and into a sanctuary like this and sit down and, and just because they're here, that, that must mean something. That must be something good. Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I, coming into a church and, uh, doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into, into your garage makes you a car. I know I've used that too many times. I've got to come up with a different example. But that's as good as I can come up with. Coming in here, it does not make you a Christian. People can come into churches today, even churches that teach the word of God, and they can come in faithless and go out faithless because they will not believe. That doesn't mean all of them, because there were those of us 
who didn't believe and did not want to believe, but somehow the Lord continued to press and his spirit continued to move and his spirit continued to chase us, it seemed, until we said, okay, I want my eyes open. Uh, let's deal with this now. Confess with your heart, or I should say confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. Paul dealt with that same problem in, in his day and time. Look at Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15. This is one of the great commentaries concerning Jesus and Thomas here. And, and it's the whole chapter, and I would encourage you to read the rest of the chapter later. But Hebrews 3, 3 verses 12 through 15 says, Take heed, brethren. By the way, when he says brethren, is he speaking to the church? He's speaking to believers. He is speaking to believers. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That being the, the, the time of the, of the wilderness experience, the 40 years that the children of, of Israel were in the wilderness. The days of provocation because they provoked God. I mean, God showed himself strong. He was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He showed them great and mighty things. They would complain. They said, you brought us out here to die. We don't have any water. God gave them water from a rock. We don't have any food. God gave them manna from heaven. And he did all of these things. And they continued, continued to murmur and complain. The provocation. Do you know that it was that? generation that did not enter into the promised land because of their unbelief? It was the younger generation that would enter into the land. All the rest died in the wilderness. And the only ones of, of that generation that didn't were Joshua and Caleb. But look at verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. But getting back to Thomas, a change had come. And there is no record of Thomas accepting Jesus' invitation. In other words, the invitation was, reach here your hands and your fingers. There's no record given that he ever did that. And when the time came to prove his faith, the disciple did not need any more proof. All that Thomas could say was, my Lord and my God. And by the way, this is the first post-resurrection confession of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, there were a few pre-resurrection uh, uh, confessions of, of the deity of Christ, many made by Jesus himself. Seven, of course, were the seven I am's of Jesus in the Gospel of John, but there were many others. John the Baptist gave indication that he was uh, the Messiah, therefore he was, in fact, deity. But my Lord, the statement, my Lord and my God, interesting statement, because when, when, when Thomas says my Lord, it in fact puts Jesus on the throne of his heart. It put Jesus on the throne of Thomas's heart. My Lord. But when he said my God, 
That was putting Jesus on the throne of all of his creation. That was putting Jesus on the throne of the universe. Because there's only one God. And Jesus was God. Verse 29 gives the indication that Thomas's testimony didn't come from his touching Jesus, but from seeing Jesus. Notice what Jesus said to him in verse 29. He said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me. Notice he doesn't say, because you've touched me and inspected me and, you know, you know opened the hood and checked underneath the hood and whatnot. No. He says, because you've seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. I can say with confidence that none of you with your physical eyes have seen Jesus. Amen? None of you have seen Jesus with your physical eyes. But those of you who are believers, you believe with all your heart that he is who he is. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. You're blessed because you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust in who he is, you trust in what he's done. By the way, none of the other disciples were in a position to criticize Thomas. None of the other disciples were in a position to criticize Thomas. They didn't believe until they saw too. <laughs> Even John, at the beginning of this chapter. Don't forget that John saw and believed. He saw and believed. They all did. Today, our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not based on what we have seen. It is based solely on God's word, and we are trusting the testimony of those who did see. We are trusting the testimony of the disciples. We're trusting the testimony of, of those who are the followers of Jesus. John, uh, I should say Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us there were more than 500 who saw Jesus. Paul in Romans chapter 10, if you'll turn there for just a moment. In Romans chapter 10. Now chapters 9 through 11 is, is Paul's great dissertation on, on, on his people Israel and their need for the Lord. And his desire, as it says at the beginning of, verse, of chapter uh, 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It is within this particular chapter of the book of Romans that Paul gives us an indication of that kind of belief that we have on the word of God. Because he says, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, uh, verse 8, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then he says, for the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. But then he goes on, if you'll jump down to verse 14 because of time, it says, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Now this progression here is leading up to what we need to see. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard or uh, have not believed? Well, they're going to have to believe because they have to, first of all, they have to hear. 
Well, how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how, how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, a preacher is going to need to be sent. And then it says, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who has believed our report? And here it is, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that is how we have come to faith in Christ. Faith cometh by hearing. We are hearing the divine testimony given through the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the teachers and the pastors and, and all, and, and, and all the way down through the ages so that we today can say, I have heard, I believe the message, I accept the truth about Jesus Christ. I accept the truth about the cross. I accept the truth about the blood of Jesus Christ shed for my forgiveness. I accept the truth that Jesus, who was buried, rose again from the dead on the third day. I accept that truth. And as you go back to verses 9 and 10 of that passage, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that, he, that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So what about the here and now? Will doubts and fears and unbelief be dismissed and banished? They can be. They can be by the very work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God together. The power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God together. And this is the reason why we'll close with, with, with the verses 30 and 31 where it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Everything Jesus did was a sign for people to see who he was. And there were a lot of things that were not written by any of the gospel writers. Uh, you know, in three and a half years, that tells us that Jesus did a whole lot of things. But then notice in verse 31, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ. They're written as the word of God so that we can hear it. And in hearing, faith will come. And in faith, we will accept and believe the truth. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So the point is that Jesus' life, his character, his behavior, his preaching, his teaching, his miracles, and his power proves that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. No man could do the things that Jesus did unless he were the Son of God. Who he was and what he did proved it. But note that Jesus did not do the signs in secret. That is, out in the desert or off in a corner of the world. He did them out in the open. He did them publicly. And John said he did the signs in the presence of his disciples. They witnessed the signs. For Jesus saw to it that there was adequate testimony and witness. Today we have the word of his testimony. So let's give witness to these changed lives through the preaching and the teaching and the proclaiming of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we are to do. There's a segment today in the church called the, the New Apostolic Reformation. They say that there are new apostles. They, they actually declare themselves to be apostles. I don't know who gave them that authority. Jesus gave the authority for the 12 that we remember. And then later on, of course, there was uh, Matthias and then Paul. But outside of that, Paul was the last true apostle. So wherever this apostolic stuff is coming from today is a deception. It is. 
because their signs are what, what their signs are going to make us believe that you know in the gospel no the, the 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 word of god has already been made clear we are to believe by the testimony of the word of god and the scriptures so that's why we need to know them so that we can tell others about them that we can tell others about jesus somebody told you amen, amen. somebody brought the gospel to you that's why you're here and if you haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to receive him today. That's not a hard thing to do. The Lord brought you here for a reason. So seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. By the way, I want to close with John 3.36. We're going to close with this because of time. Notice that it says, He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. I'd like to stop there, but I don't want to. Because I think it's important for you to see the rest. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. I want you to know that it's a serious matter that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you believe to the point that you will give your life for Jesus. That you surrender all to Jesus. And that you obey him and do those things that honor him until the day of Christ. Because that day is near. Amen.